Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kenji Ross, from EPAM Continuum. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Dr. Asif Ali about something we're all doing a lot more lately. Staying put. One of the places we're not going is the doctor's office, and it turns out that might be okay. That's because of the promise of telemedicine. COVID has made telemedicine more palatable to patients, providers, and payers alike. Since the traditional practice of medicine relies on gathering data in person and making decisions with it, something will need to replace that. Wearables are the obvious choice, but how can their data be trusted? Well, as you might guess, Dr. Ali is working on this, as you'll soon learn from his conversation with Lisa Butcher, Senior Director of Digital Engagement at EPAM. As the Chief Medical Officer of Preventric, he's focused on vascular health and the promise of accurate and ambient wearables. Preventric's especially focused on blood pressure, probably the most important metric for the 45% of adults in the U.S. that suffer from hypertension. Now, blood pressure hasn't always been terribly easy to measure. In fact, some of the first blood pressure measurements taken by the Reverend Stephen Hales in 1733 involved, and this is not a setup for a joke, a sedated horse and a nine-foot-long glass tube unceremoniously inserted into its femoral artery. Today, we've got slightly less invasive methods, including one that Dr. Ali's company has developed. It's so uninvasive, in fact, that you can take nighttime measurements without waking the wearer, something you can't say for the inflatable cups we're all used to. For more on what this means, and how it could change the way doctors diagnose a wide variety of conditions, let's listen in. Good afternoon, Dr. Ali. I'd like to start off by asking you to share a little bit about yourself, if you would, and also maybe tell us about your relationship with Preventric. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for having me on this program. Uh, my name is Dr. Asif Ali. I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Texas in the Texas Medical Center in Houston, and I am currently the chief medical officer of Preventric. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time today, Dr. Ali. One of the things that I, I was um, looking forward to speaking with you about is COVID. So COVID has clearly disrupted our lives in ways that we would have never imagined this past year. Would love to know, given the changes of, of um, why, the widely accepted use of telemedicine, how do you see the future for chronic care management and remote patient monitoring, you know, given this shift? I want to answer that um, great question, and it is um, a very trying time with COVID-19 pandemic. I first want to thank all the first responders, um, both medical and non-medical, who have really put in the time and effort to get us through to where we are now able to vaccinate the masses. And I do hope uh, for a uh, optimistic future with these vaccines. With that said, uh, I'll answer your question with a with an actually amazing story of Perfect. a patient of mine who um, came in to see me actually at my office as a new patient. I'd never met him. Um, we'll uh, use a fictitious fictitious name. Uh, call him Arthur. And um, Arthur um, is part of this healthcare system which he was not able to access. And now with COVID nineteen. Um, made that even worse, right? Access has been a major issue for 
established patients, new patients, because people, frankly, are worried about going into offices where other individuals may um, make them sick with COVID-19. So Arthur, however, way before that, had issues just accessing healthcare. And he got to the point, he's 32 years old, and he weighed 716 pounds. And it took him two bus trips to my office just to uh, finally make it to a breaking point that he had to see a doctor and um, had to walk about a quarter of a mile to my office uh, from the second bus stop, comes into my office, notifies the front desk that he's a new patient, needs to check in, and says, I don't feel too well, and then goes into sudden cardiac arrest. And he ab absolutely uh, is in code blue, which means his heart had uh, stopped. And I remember that morning being pulled out of one of the rooms and in front of a big waiting room of patients and starting CPR on this individual. And embodied in doing that CPR, not knowing this patient, all of these thoughts going in my mind saying, you know, where was the lack of healthcare with this individual? Um, where was that access? And, you know, how did this individual now deteriorate to the point where I'm doing CPR to save his life um, on the floor in my waiting room? Unbelievable. And, and I think um, Arthur really captures and emulates and is a very good um, point of Patients who have that lack of access, lack of ability to um, reach out to healthcare. And COVID, um, to answer the, your question, has been an absolute accelerator um, in the ability now to access healthcare. And actually, in March 2020, Medicare lifted restrictions to allow patients to access their healthcare uh, professionals. And the good news with Arthur um, is we were able to save his life. And um, when he was able to uh, talk, you know, he told me the story of just the access and not uh, having the ability to um, get into healthcare, how to how to manage it, how to start, um, just all the social problems that um, one would have to even know where to begin. And um, the telemedicine part of this absolutely was a game changer for him. In fact, um, that particular case, you know, with his obesity, um, no doctor would touch him, no bariatric surgeon would touch him because he had this cardiac arrest. And unfortunately, because of his weight, none of the heart labs had the ability to take on a patient more than 500 pounds. So the answer to Arthur was, look, um, you had a, we can all argue, a life-threatening, game-changing event that happened in your life. And what are we going to be able to do with this? And just amazingly, here comes this whole concept of chronic care management and remote patient management. And we had a wearable company step up and donate a wearable to Arthur, we had a diabetes prevention program step up and um, give a nutritionist to Arthur. And lo and behold, we're 
two years out, Arthur's lost over 450 pounds. It's over half of his weight. And did this without um, any surgical intervention, all lifestyle intervention using remote patient monitoring and chronic care management with devices, wearables, and a nutritionist and a doctor who, you know, cared enough about this patient to get him back on his feet. And I think that's what COVID-19 has been for many patients, is an accelerator where the parity laws and the reimbursements are there for doctors and patients to be able to access healthcare when and where they want it. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that story. It's incredibly inspiring. Um, I love to hear the stories that you share from your practice and your own experience. So thank you so much for that. Um, from your perspective, um, just shifting gears, but very related, what are the most pressing issues related to vascular care today that you're seeing? I know it's a broad question. It's a great question. And when you talk about vascular care, let's just define it as atherosclerotic vascular disease, which stands for um, you have blood vessels from head to toe. And so we're looking at uh, strokes, uh, transient ischemic attacks, also known as TIAs, so that's more in the brain vessels, to the heart vessels, so that could be heart attack or um, what we call chronic stable angina, where you have chest pain, you do blocked arteries, or all the way down to your legs called peripheral vascular disease. So that's really the spectrum of blood vessels from head to toe, and you can get uh, diseases in any of them, with heart attacks still being the number one killer in America, and um, strokes being number three, with number two being cancer, by the way. And so in vascular care, um, first big issue is data collection. It's acquiring data, and meaningful data, and accurate data. And we use the term vitals. So when you go to a doctor's office or an urgent care or an emergency room, the first thing that's uh, accessed and acquired on you is your vitals. And we call it vitals because we have to make decisions based on those numbers. And those numbers include your blood pressure, which is your top and bottom number, known as systolic and diastolic pressures. Also your pulse rate, which is how fast your heart is beating. And your oxygen saturation or your oxygen status, which we all too know well with COVID-19, one of the big areas that we check for because it affects your lungs and your oxygenation. And we try to get a temperature to make sure that um, part of the vitals that we're acquiring, if you have an infection or not. And we can even add weight in there in some cases. That is also very helpful. But those are the, the, the vitals. And right. For vascular care, I mean, it's all about getting that data. And, and as you know, Lisa, um, there's, you know, many ways to acquire data. There's uh, so many products out there. And we can talk later about consumer products versus medical grade products. But the beginning and the end is um, acquiring data that's accurate and easy to get. And that is really where vascular care starts, uh, begins and ends, actually. Right. And, you know, Lisa, there's, it's, it's, um, it's really amazing uh, in the last five years because of AI and because of data acquisition, 
in the last five years, there's been such a big push on looking at the data, um, whether it's uh, medications, pharmaceuticals, or wearables, um, anything in the spectrum of vascular care. Uh, data acquisition has to be done um, accurately, and um, how you get that data is very important. Fantastic. I, I think we see that every day as we work together. One of the things I've heard you share before around a barrier around gaining vitals is also the way that people are taking their blood pressure. And I find that very interesting as much as we are now um, embracing the concept of home monitoring. What do you see some of these barriers? Sure. So um, great questions. And you're right, as we're really expanding telemedicine and wearables, then really the impetus is to make sure that that data is collected and um, collected well. So a few things here. One is, um, as we're getting into medical consumerism, first is to make sure that we know who the end user is, and that end user is the patient. And so everything really needs to begin and end with good patient consumerism care and making sure that the patient, um, A, understands why we're acquiring that information and B, making it easy for that patient. And C, the big word is um, in, in, in most practices is making sure that the patients are actually uh, able to collect the data. and that that data acquisition should really be done where the patient's not even really thinking about it. And that I think is really important because if you put all of the, um, uh, if we actually make, make the patients have to go through many steps and really this is called human computing, um, what are the steps that that patient has to do to be able to um, access that or have to access or um, collect that data. Mm -hmm. And um, and the easier that we can make it for patients to actually collect that da data, the, the, the better outcomes we're going to have. And I have seen and reviewed many, many different types of products. And you always have to think of worst case scenarios of uh, patients having acquired that data. And I think the best data acquisitions for for consumers are ones where the patient is not even aware that that data is being acquired. So, um, you know, we talk about kind of the future of where wearables are going. And to me, the, the, the biggest impact that wearables could have on patients is actually where the patient is acquiring that data and not even thinking about it. And that really is going to be, I think, the biggest challenge for wearables is to be able to accomplish that task. That makes good sense. Um, at, clearly, as you said, there's a, a sea of consumer wearables and monitors um, in home solutions. How do you see Preventrix device revolutionizing the field of cardiovascular care? So absolutely. So when we talk about Preventrix, we're talking about BPRO, which is a wearable device that acquires blood pressure information um, using something called tonometry, which sits on an artery, it's actually on your wrist, called the radial artery, and takes blood pressures from the what we call CASP, the central aortic systolic 
pressure. So a lot of words, a lot of technical data there, but um, making sure that uh, accurate data is is paramount into making uh, decisions. And that's really where Preventric comes into play. It is acquiring data that is uh, the most accurate data, non-inferior to what we uh, talk about an invasive arterial line. So that that's an art line or an arterial line is actually a a, um, a device that goes in your artery. And that is sort of the gold standard that we use in really critical patients from the intensive care unit or the chronic or the CCU, just the um, cardiology care unit um, or cardiac care unit. And um, Preventric is a device that um, is non-inferior to that accurate data that would uh, be otherwise invasive in a non-invasive way. And when we talk about hypertension, we really look at hypertension as a major driver of those major vascular diseases that we talked about before. Heart attacks being the number one killer and strokes the number three. Hypertension is one of the major, major risk factors. And it's amazing to me today that we're here in 2021 and that the American Heart Association still has hypertension as a major focus and a major preventable disease that has yet to be tackled. Hypertension still is so pervasive in the nation. In the U.S., almost 50% of patients have either prehypertension, stage one or stage two hypertension. Preventric is a device that is looking to use AI and accuracy in collecting the data of hypertension and making informed decisions on the best way to manage those blood pressures. In addition, when we talk about blood pressure, most people think about, oh, taking my blood pressure, we, we usually think about taking it in the daytime. Maybe a doctor will tell you, let's spread out taking your blood pressures in the morning and evening. But a big question mark has always been, what about my blood pressure when I'm sleeping? What happens between my sleeping hours? And that was a very interesting study that came out um, in Europe in 2019 that showed modifying one factor in your blood pressure could decrease the risk for heart attacks, stroke, sudden cardiac death, and heart failure. And that one big factor was understanding what is happening with your blood pressure when you are asleep in your sleeping hours. So if you think about in a 24-hour period, your blood pressure, what happens? Typically, in a typical patient, we call it a circadian rhythm. In the daytime, your blood pressures go up. That makes sense, right, Lisa? Absolutely. We're, <laughs> we're, working, we're on Zoom calls. We have deadlines. And it's the waking hours. You know, it's daylight. You have a sympathetic surge. And your fight or flight is, you know, up. And your blood pressures go up. Great. You know, that is part of the, the rhythm of life. Daytime hours, blood pressures go up. Uh, we get phone calls, we have school, we have work, so on and so forth. Sounds all too familiar. All too familiar, right? <laughs> but at nighttime, when we, we're, we're trying to shut it off, right, Lisa? Uh, hopefully we do. Um, and, um, but 
you know, the reality is um, Americans are working more shift work. Uh, COVID-19 has been, been a major factor in people losing their jobs or being furloughed. And that stress um, can absolutely resonate to our nighttime hours. And in the nighttime hours, our blood pressures are supposed to drop somewhere between 10 to 20 percent. Those are those are normal blood pressure drops um, in the nighttime. But what we found by using devices like Bpro, we've been able to actually monitor patients' blood pressures at night. And lo and behold, in some patients, instead of the blood pressures dipping, and that is the term called dippers, which means that your blood pressures dip down by 10 to 20 percent, which is considered normal, some patients don't. And in fact, either their blood pressures remain the same level as the daytime or actually go up at night. And those are called reverse dippers. Many doctors, we say, oh, your blood pressures are spiking at night, also synonymous with reverse dippers. And those patients who are reverse dippers are the most susceptible to higher incidence of heart attacks, strokes, and cardiovascular death, and actually heart failure. And by knowing that information, if we could shift the medications of their blood pressure medications to nighttime, in the studies in the European Journal um, of Hypertension, uh, we found out that we could actually reduce those incidences of stroke, heart attack, and sudden cardiac death by up to 40%. That's a game changer. That's, that's, it is. And there are very few medications, by the way, that are out there that can claim a 40% reduction in, in, in the mortality and morbidity. And so Absolutely. I think that is a, a very important focus of what we're trying to collect in, in prevention. It was very powerful, Dr. Ali, when you shared with me already the impact that just knowing that data has had with your own patients. Um, and I also um, find it fascinating that you you look at everything that we're doing together with EPAM as making sure that it's providing actionable data. Um, and so there was a story that you shared with us about the, the shift in medication based on that. And I would love it if you would just spend a few minutes sharing that with us. Absolutely. I'd love to share a couple of case studies with you. Perfect. And um, really interesting case studies. And I think this really uh, first case study really pushes upon the difference between consumer grade and wearable wearables uh, versus uh, medical grade wearables. And um, absolutely, you know, in, in any of these discussions, please do uh, refer to your own physicians when you're acquiring your own data. Um, but I can tell you that um, many of my patients ask, it's a frequently asked question. Um, you know, what type of blood pressure machine should I get? Um, do the wrist blood pressure machines work well? Um, should I have it on the arm? Uh, and intuitively, what I would tell you is your heart is in the center of your chest, and we want to take the blood pressures at the level of the heart. Well, in the first case, I had a patient um, who actually did a telemedicine visit, and the telemedicine visit was. I have elevated blood pressure. And so I talked to this 58-year-old lady who says, I've never had high blood pressure, but I received this blood pressure cuff that goes on my wrist, and I've been taking it, and I've been sitting, and I have my hands in my lap, 
and I take my blood pressures every day. And for and since I've been starting taking my blood pressure, my blood pressures have been in the 160s. Um, that's the top number, the systolic number. Right. And and I said, okay, have you had any uh, any issues or any symptoms like a headache or chest pain? And she goes, actually, I have the opposite. I keep passing out. And I said, oh, you have something called syncope, which means you're blanking out and you found yourself on the floor a couple of times. I said, that's really not not good. And I think, you know, we really need to have an inpatient visit, not not just a telemedicine visit. And I said, well, how are you getting your blood pressure um, checked? And she said, well, I'm putting this blood pressure machine. It blows up on my wrist and um, I have my wrist in my lap and I sit real still and I'm getting these blood pressures of 160s. And I said, interesting, why don't you come into my office? I'd like to um, uh, do some blood work and some blood pressures while you're lying, sitting and standing. And actually, when we took her blood pressures, her blood pressures um, went from where, somewhere from around 107 down to 90s on the top number when she stood up. It's called wow. orthostatic hypotension. So I want to give you the scenario because had I acted on that blood pressure of 160 on a blood pressure machine that was on her wrist and with her hands in her lap, um, I would, in in any case scenario, would have right. treated that. But because she clued me that it, almost the opposite, I mean, she was passing out, which we see more when the blood pressure goes low. And we ended up putting a preventric device on her and lo and behold her blood pressures are in the low low 100s unbelievable and we end up actually diagnosing her with something called dysautonomia and actually believe it or not how to give her medications like a salt pill to increase her blood pressure not decrease and had we taken action on that inaccurate data we would have done a lot of harm on a telemedicine visit rather than having her come in and making sure that we did a physical exam and all of these approaches that we did on her, including the preventric B-Pro device. It was a game changer. Game for changer. <laughs> Absolutely. Could have done <clears throat> a lot of harm without having that a accurate data that the B-Pro gave both in the morning and evening. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You mentioned um, AI and ML, of course. One of the things that we're working on with uh, at EPAM with you is helping to define the art of the possible related to AI and ML and how it can transform vascular care. Would love your um, ideas around how you see us getting closer to delivering precision medicine. Absolutely. So, you know, first let's start that we all agree, I think, on this podcast that collecting accurate data is paramount. Without that accuracy of the data, um, we're, um, we're in, you know, jeopardy of making, um, uh, uninformed decisions. And so collecting that data is very important. And then how, what are we doing with that data, right? How do we process? And I think, um, that collection of data, that processing of data, and then that communication of that data to the healthcare provider. And then the next step is the interoperability of that data into the EMR. And from that, then it is actually looking at what, what I call point of care decision making through interoperability, through grabbing data from the EMR, displaying that in, um, 
actionable data management and then feedback to the, the actual patient and giving those results to the patients to create those treatment options. And that really embodies and encompasses this relationship with um, EPAM and Preventric on that workflow. And not just on that workflow, but also on that communication, that interoperability, and that pulling of data to make point-of-care decision-making with the patient. Um, the AI really is important, as we've talked about, not just the daytime blood pressures, but the nighttime blood pressures, and how do we manage those systems and create those treatment options that are in the best interest of the patient? Is that changing medications? Is that changing medical management with the patient, changing the blood pressure medications to nighttime versus daytime, looking at other variables that could be affecting their blood pressures, like oral, like um, over-the-counter medications that could be influencing blood pressures like NSAIDs or um, oral contraceptive pills, which have known to increase blood pressures. All of that data, how do you work with those workflows? How do you um, grab that data and use AI to help processes to have feedback and results and treatment options. That's really a very big task that goes back to one of your previous questions about the, you know, the most pressing, pressing issues related in vascular care today. This project really um, accomplishes many of those pressing issues and answers many of those pressing issues of informed decision-making. Absolutely. It's been, it's been so exciting um, for me personally, but but for all of us at EPAM to be partnering with you on this journey. Every time we talk about AI and ML, um, Dr. Ali, I know we could probably go on for hours on thinking about the art of the possible. So, so thank you for sharing that. I think just one more question I have. Um, as I said, we really value our partnership, and I'd love to know how important partnerships are from your perspective to the success of offerings that, that Preventric um, and other companies have? So Lisa, could you, um, wasn't sure what the question was again, could you re rephrase that one? Yeah, I guess, um, so as we look at the partnership between EPAM and with you and the Preventric team, how important do you see the partnerships like the ones that we have in uh, continuing to um, evolve this journey? So I would use the word vital. <laughs> so, <laughs> so would I. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it's this convergence that's extremely important in when we talk about wearable devices, we talk about telemedicine, we talk about interoperability, um, and we talk about workflow. You have to bring different segments of healthcare tech together. It's not just having a great wearable. It's what do you do with that information? It's how do you process that information? It's how do you work with uh, patients and physicians? How do you bridge um, those healthcare providers, those relationships and those gaps? Um, it's so much that um, encompasses in that question. And how do you break down the different verticals? Um, so, you know, great, there's great tech coming out. Um, that are really working on um, 
not just you know the technology, but making sure that they're validated through studies and becoming FDA approved. And then that next leap is working in conjunction with companies like EPAM and bringing those um, amazing minds that EPAM uh, has to the table to look at um, the very many different angles of bringing that technology to bear, uh, making sure that it is healthcare-centric, making sure that the physicians um, are able to uh, work within those um, spectrums and making it easy to um, uh, display the information for point-of-care decision-making, to making sure that the patients, that it's patient-centric, um, that it's easy to use for compliance for the patients, and ultimately uh, making those really dis important life decision-making uh, processes like we talked about in that case study and making sure that our, our patient-physician partnerships are um, together, are established, and are continuing to grow. And having that relationship with uh, uh, medical devices and companies uh, like EPAM are really vital to make those happen and come to fruition. It's been an exciting journey so far. Look forward to, to continuing it. I, I guess we're out of time, but I wanted to um, to thank you so much for your time today. But I think more importantly, thank you so much for your partnership with, with me as well as with EPAM. It's just truly a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Ali. Thank you, uh, Lisa, for the opportunity. EPAM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks are due to our guest, Dr. Asif Ali, for a heart-pounding conversation. He was interviewed by Senior Director of Digital Engagement, Lisa Butcher. Our producer is Ken Gordon. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer. And I'm your host, Kenji Ross. Until the next one... Thank you.